KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. The idea of a third major political party rising to be a player in American politics is often talked about, but it hasn't happened, obviously. Why not? Is it something we could see in the relatively near future? If we do, what would it look like? What are the challenges to forming a party to go up against Republicans and Democrats? For this discussion, we reached out to Dr. Joshua Weikert. He is an assistant professor at Immaculata University in the Department of Civil Engagement. Give a listen. So I feel like every couple of presidential cycles, we have this discussion that bubbles to the top that we need another, a third major party in American politics. And it seems to kind of gather momentum and then almost just as quickly it dies out. Do you think it is likely, let's say in our lifetimes, that we will see a a third party uh, rise and maintain a level of competitiveness in American elections? Well, let, let's let's start with like the, the big picture, bottom line, upfront answer here, which is probably not. It's it's extremely unlikely. Now, it, obviously, there's a lot of conditionality built into that statement, right? One reason that you're not likely to see that is because the rules make the game in any political system, and the rules of our political system militate against multiple parties. Uh, whenever you have a situation where the candidate with the most votes wins you create an effect where it, it drives smaller parties to merge together to make a bigger electoral block, right? Um, and, and, and when you have one of these first-past-the-post systems, which is what we call it when you just need a plurality of the vote, not a majority, like there's no runoffs or anything, there's no proportional representation, it's just whoever gets the most votes wins, it, it nudges us towards something that, that in political science we refer to as Duverger's Law. Uh, Maurice Duverger was a French, I want to say sociologist. He wouldn't have thought of himself as a political scientist. But he basically said that in any system like ours, the number of effective parties you have is equal to the number of people who can win any particular office plus one. So since almost all of our offices are single member districts where you elect one person to be mayor, one person to be governor, one person to represent you know, your congressional district, our district magnitude is one. And so we only have two effective parties because if you had, for example, you know, three liberal parties and five conservative parties, well, then a liberal would always win because they're splitting their roughly equal share of the vote among three parties instead of five. And so the conservative parties would say, well, that's no good. So a bunch of them merge together to form two parties instead of five. And then the liberals see that and they say, well, maybe we should band together from one party. So it drives you towards that bipolarity. And it's not that a third party can't survive or exist in that system. It's just that it usually doesn't because third parties are usually challenging one of the established parties in their same ideological space. And then if they're successful at all, they just end up drawing votes away from kind of their own side out of their own pool of votes. And therefore they throw the election to the other side. So it's, it's, it's structurally challenging to have a real third party. Now, to the extent that we might actually see this, this would be the kind of historical moment where it happens, where you have significant division within one of the ideological blocks. So right now in the Republican party, you have what, what in polling we usually refer to as like Trump Republicans versus party Republicans, and they disagree on a lot of substantive issues. And so you could see a fracture in the same way we saw fracturing, like among the parties when, when the Whig Party collapsed. Like that's, that's like the one historical example we have of a major American party just going down in flames is the Whig Party in the 1850s. And that was sort of what did it. And there was the issue of slavery where you had sort of, you know, pro-slavery Whigs and anti-slavery Whigs. And, you know, whenever you have the Whenever you have tension in your electoral coalition, you have the potential for a break in the party. And when there's a break in the party, that 
when the party can obviously, you know, become vulnerable to out getting out competed by another party in their same ideological space. So when we look at this, one of the problems I think that pushes against the idea of a third party is people will talk about it. Oh, it's a great concept. We should do this. But you're not going to come in and win, especially at the at a high presidential level, which is where most people look at it. You're going to have to play an incredibly long game where you're in the wilderness for several cycles. You bring the probably the party closest to you ideologically into the wilderness with you. And then maybe 10, 12, 15 years you've established enough where you can think about the possibility of winning a national race. And when you really dig into it, that doesn't seem very appetizing. No, and it's it's also the, it's also the case that even if you were to attempt that, you would probably reach in your internal deliberations about whether it was worth it and how you would go about it. You'd also probably get to the conclusion that it's probably just as easy to do that within your own party, as in just take your support. Say I'm still a Democrat, I'm still a Republican, whichever you know party you're aligning with. But for the time being, I'm going to support the opposition because our internal politics are not satisfying whatever my goals are, what my beliefs are, et cetera. So rather than trying to rebrand and build a whole new party and entice people over to it and run the same risks, you would maintain one of these internal, you know, an internal defector where you're just, you know, you're, you're a, you know, like, like a, like a Jeff Flake character or a, you know, or a Lisa Murkowski or a Mitt Romney, where it's like, I'm, I'm in the Republican party, but I have no objection to working with Democrats uh, and, and supporting them for, for election because they more closely mirror what I would like to see in the American political system. And there's also the question of what this new party, even if you were to establish it, like wh- what would it represent and what, what space would it occupy in, on, along the political spectrum? Because we tend to think of it as, you know, straddling the middle between these two parties. But, you know, th- that's when you're standing in the middle of the road, that's a good way to get hit by traffic in both directions. You know, you're never going to make either faction really happy. And parties are factional. Parties are designed to organize collective action. And so it's easier to organize them around one sort of guiding principle than sort of a a principle of compromise or or civility or whatever else we might be thinking this new party would look like. Now, when it comes to party competition, though, it's not always the case that a third party can't be competitive or that it's always going to be a spoiler. It's also the case that you might find specific places, because you mentioned we only pay attention to this at the national level, when the Libertarian Party, the Green Party puts up a candidate, we're like, you know, boy, it's really hard for a third party to get anything done. It's like, well, yeah, you could, and that's because you just got your driver's license and you're trying to win the Daytona 500 instead of starting small. And in smaller settings, in smaller constituencies, like if we're talking about a really, 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 really liberal district, like in like, you know, like downtown Baltimore or something, you know, a blue part of the bluest state in the country or a really, a really Republican conservative heavy district in like, you know, in like rural Alabama, like that's a place where a minor party can can compete and offer an alternative without throwing the election to their political opposition, because there's such an overwhelming advantage already in that constituency. And to the extent that a third party is actually possible in the U.S. or more likely a a replacement party for one of the two major parties, to the extent that the Democratic or or Republican parties would get sort of undermined, that's how it would happen. They'd start losing elections in in city council races and state legislatures in what are otherwise safe seats for them. And they'd start getting out-competed at the local level by this new party, whatever it is. And eventually that local party or excuse me, that new third party that's competing effectively at the local level would grow in size where it could actually threaten for statewide offices or, you know, a federal congressional district or something like that. And that can happen relatively quickly because once that ball starts, once that snowball starts rolling down that hill, it grows rapidly because people want to be part of a 
a successful effort. And so if you, if you, to the extent that you can peel off members of the existing established parties, that's how it happens. You start winning elections because, you know, like it or not, in a, in a representative democracy, elected officials are more sensitive to what gets them elected and reelected than anything else, which is kind of why we have it like that. We want that. We want them to be sensitive to public opinion. So when they see that their party is getting sort of outcompeted in, in, small, in smaller local elections, that's when they start feeling comfortable, you know, jumping over to the new party, which is what we saw with the Whigs when they imploded. It happened, you know, not not exactly overnight, but very, very rapidly. I mean, they had maybe a, a three year stretch where they went from being a dominant political party to being defunct. And it can happen just that quickly once the tide starts to turn. Yeah. And that was because I when you start to really dig into this because we only pay attention to it at basically the presidential level. But if you were somebody, and I will just say conservative, because I think a lot of the focus is on the GOP right now. If you were a very rich conservative who had the idea that the party is not serving us anymore, that's the way we always think of it top down, but bottom up is where you could really – because you could win a lot of races relatively cheaply when you talk at those ground level, even in state house, you know, you pick your battles and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, maybe all it takes is six or seven seats in a certain legislature, depending on how it's set up. And you've got power. You might not be in the majority, but you're the kingmaker. It would seem to me that would be a much more attractive and much more realistic path to national power. It absolutely is. And as you said, in state legislatures, I mean, the Pennsylvania House, you have 203 members, I want to say, 201, something just over 200. It's an odd number. Uh, You have 200-ish members. If you could win, say, you know, 15, 20 races with a competitive third party, first of all, that would be be doable. There are districts where you could get that done despite the electoral rule pressures, right? And once you're elected, once you're in the legislature there, you would actually be in a position to, as you say, be a kingmaker. You, you'd control a big enough block that you would compel one of the two major parties to go enter into a coalition with you to get control of the chamber, to get a majority of the seats. And so that's how you start exercising power. And, and again, once people see that it's a real party and it's got a viable path to exercising some kind of meaningful political power, that's going to attract more followers to it. The challenge that most third parties face, though, is that uh, for all of our, you know, sometimes justifiable griping about political or about the Democratic and Republican parties, the Democratic and Republican parties do a very good job of sort of, you know, covering the field in terms of what's available ideologically. They, they ha- both have sort of centrist elements and more, you know, more, I don't want to say extreme elements, but although that can be the case, obviously, but they cover already a very broad part of the spectrum. If you consider yourself just sort of an average run of the mill unaffiliated, truly independent voter, there's a good chance you're going to find something of what you like in the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, at least in some faction of it. It's unlikely you're going to find that if you're going to be, again, an average, unaffiliated, available voter. It's unlikely you're going to find that in the Green Party or the Libertarian Party or the Working Families Party or one of these other minor parties. So where do you go as a third party is a great question. In fact, you know, it, it I, I would argue that it's more likely that we see more independent candidates winning office and being successful, as in just purely unaffiliated candidates, than that you have a third party become really successful. I think another reason why things are like they are is Democrats and Republicans don't agree on much these days, but they agree they're the only ones that should have a bite at the apple. So how do the major parties make life difficult for 
any other party to become competitive. And I would imagine simply just making it as hard as possible to get on the ballot and stuff like that. No, it's 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 a it's a it's an item of conventional wisdom that that's true and that it's it's very onerous if you're not a major party candidate to get on the ballot. Empirically, I have a I have a problem with that because it's really not that hard to get on the ballot. If you're running First of all, Pennsylvania recognizes as in other words, it pre-qualifies four political parties uh, to get on the ballot, Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, and Greens. Those are parties that are already recognized, which means if you want to run for the state house or the state Senate, you need something in the ring. I think it's 300 signatures on a petition to get on the ballot for one of those parties for the state house and 500 for the state legislature and a thousand signatures to get on a statewide ballot as governor, lieutenant governor, or attorney general. I mean, like those are not high barriers to entry. Like if you can't pull 300 signatures from a district of, you know, 80,000 people, then you're not, you don't, you don't have a chance in hell of winning anyway. Right. I, and there are, there are, there are specific examples where I think like North Carolina is particularly, you know, puts up a, a particularly high wall for candidates for statewide office if they're not a Democrat or a Republican. But by those are the exceptions, not the rule. The, the rule is actually that it's, it's surprisingly easy to get on a ballot in, in most states, even in states where they, they set not a hard, you know, limit, but where, but where they set a requirement for a, a certain percentage of the, you know, you need to get enough petition signatures to match like two or three percent of like the vote total of the candidate who got the most votes in the last election in your district. Well, when we think about the Pennsylvania State House, you know, even in even in very high turnout elections, most of those races are won with something like 20,000, 25,000 votes. So, you know, two percent of that total is not exactly that tough to get your hands on. So even if we're talking about independent candidates or, unaf- or or very minor party, like not outside of those four recognized parties, it's still relatively easy to get on the ballot. Where the, where the two major parties do their best work, best, I guess, being a matter of perspective, in sort of like keeping up, boxing other parties out, it's in marketing in that most people identify as a Democrat or a Republican, and they do it by, you know, it, it leveraging their size, just like any large business or a large corporation would, right? They have access to larger pools of volunteers, larger pools of money. They're more, they can compete more effectively. And as long as that's true, it's going to be very hard for any minor parties to outcompete them because they have this, this you know, economy of scale in, in manpower and in, and in resources and in other slack resources that are politically relevant, whether that's, you know, relationships with you know, advertisers or TV stations or journalists, right? You know, they can they can make it very hard for anyone else to get into the game. And there's only so many minutes of coverage. There's only so many volunteers to knock doors. There's only so many dollars out there going to campaigns. And since they can be very effectively for them now, that's that's the bigger barrier. The structural barriers, the actual legal barriers, the formal barriers are are not nearly as high as anyone imagines. You mentioned a couple times. You know, we talk about third party. There are other parties. And I think the two at the top of the list, past Republican and Democrat, are Libertarian and Green. Mm-hmm. Um, it's amazing to me, like the Libertarians in 2016, because of a distaste with both candidates, did, I don't want to say well, but, you know, well, they moved the needle for as much as I think in my lifetime, other than Ross Perot, we've seen for a, for a third party. One of the things is when there are gasps from specifically the libertarian green they can't seem to build on them why is that an organizational thing is that a what the party's about thing is it that you know nice place to visit don't want to live there what what do you you know why don't they get a little more traction given that they are more established i think even 
casual political people have probably heard of the parties. And, you know, if they're not on all 50 ballots, they're close to it, right? Yes. Yeah. Or they're at least on enough ballots to actually have like a realistic shot at winning, like theoretically. The the biggest challenge they face is it, it, it I don't I don't want to speak on behalf of all voters, obviously, but it seems like most of the time when you see a big surge in third party or independent candidate voting, it's kind of only driven by dissatisfaction with the, the choices in the major parties. In other words, it's rare to see a minor party candidate in and of their own, like on their own merits, attract a large share of the vote. You know, maybe maybe a Ross Perot type figure is maybe the exception. But it's that that these are mostly protest votes or grievance votes. And so the, the support is not real. It's it's an expression of something else. Um, also, when you when voters look at these parties platforms, they don't actually like them very much. Uh, when, when we because we, we, we political scientists, we test for this. You know, we'll give we'll give people, you know, basically party platforms and or lists of issue positions with no party name attached. And say, pick pick from among these platforms which ones you like best or rank them, right? And it's almost always the case that the Democratic and Republican Party platforms come out one and two. And then Libertarian and Green and other minor, minor party platforms come, come way down below that. So it's that they're, they're selling a product that is not all that attractive to begin with. When you, when you dig into the weeds of what you know, the Libertarian platform and the Green Party platform and some other party platforms look like, they often advocate for things that are just not very popular. Whereas the Democratic or Republican parties, even in their quasi extreme forms, still represent something that's a more attractive option to more voters. So to the extent that these minor parties matter, they influence the major parties to adjust their platforms. Because one big reason that we've had the same two parties now for the better part of 150 years as the dominant parties, because they adapt, they evolve, they change over time. The party platform of 1950 in either party looks nothing like it looks today. And a lot of that comes from just changing social attitudes and political attitudes in the population. But it also comes from making sure you're guarding your center and your flanks against intrusion from these minor parties. So that's the real contribution that these minor parties make to the political system. Looking at our landscape and going back, you know, once again, looking at the Republican Party kind of in the Petri dish for this discussion, because it would seem that the the one thing I could see happening that would breathe life into this idea is we've kind of come at it from people who are unhappy, you know, so basically never Trump conservatives that have had enough. What if Donald Trump decided to just start the Trump party, whatever? There is a built-in base that probably would not question anything. It is not a base that has really hung its head on anything ideological other than following Donald Trump. What happens... And it's something I think that his people have floated. My personal opinion is they like to do that just to keep kind of breathing breathing oxygen into the fire. But were that to happen, how would that play out, you think? I think you would see a, a limited degree of success in maybe the most Trumpy areas of map. You know, like theoretically, I could see this happening because you're right. It, to the extent that this is possible, it would take some like a charismatic party to form. So it's around one personality who can, you know, draw a lot of attention and knows how to leverage it and, you know, say what you will about former President Trump. He, that's something he definitely did well. You know, he was good about making it about him, which unfortunately was, again, to the detriment of the rest of the party in a lot of places because you had non Trumpy Republicans, you know, getting damaged electorally because of their affiliation with the Republican Party, which is now all about Trump. 
So let's assume he does it. I think in some places you see some success. There are certainly parts of you know the the South and and the, the Mountain West, or and maybe individual districts in some states where a candidate could again because there's such an advantage already for conservative voters more broadly that 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 split would make it possible for that new minor faction to win. But it would it would I, I believe it would, it, it would create utter destruction and and chaos in the in any statewide or national races that you saw, and you would still see a relatively unified Democratic Party, strange as it is to say, because unified and Democratic Party are not words we usually throw together. But it, w- it would keep Democrats, it would it would make it even easier for them to bury their differences and sort of focus on what they perceive as this electoral threat. And it would cost oh, who knows how many seats in Congress. It, it, you would see Democratic supermajorities, I think, in, in the House and the Senate it, were that to happen, which is almost certainly why it would never happen. Because one of two things would probably occur. You'd see some limited success based on Trump's ability just to attract media attention, but serious donors in the party and, you know, serious staff and, you know, communication specialists, what have you. They wouldn't want to enable this because, frankly, they're, they're smarter than that. They, they would see that the short and medium and long term consequences of this would be disastrous for the GOP. But that wouldn't mean that, you know, they couldn't see some very limited success just based on the momentum that it would create. But I think long term, could it create a real party? Probably not. Because, again, the, the effort that takes, uh, you know, would probably be better, better put to use as people as, as these people would do that math. The effort that would take would be better used in just trying to reform the party they're already in than trying to create a new one. And my final question is kind of an overall as a political scientist, as someone so well versed in this. How concerned are you about the health of our political system in this country right now? Very too extremely. <laughs> like it's, uh, uh, it's 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 not just an academic discussion at this point. We're seeing the we're, we're we're seeing the costs of the kind of politics we've pursued for the last say forty years. In, in that we're seeing increasing partisanship and increasing drift of the uh, the median partisan in each faction is getting further and further and further from their opposite number, and we're seeing that people are losing faith in democracy as a whole like they they don't see elections as valid institutions of conveying political power and like and the question becomes like well where does that lead us and nowhere good is the is the answer for what it's worth though the good news and the things i spend most of my time sort of like you know pitching for when i when i speak with political leaders there are solutions because the problems we have right now are not intrinsic to either the united states or to american democracy they're features of how we've set up the rules of how people get elected. Because as I mentioned earlier, electoral incentives are kind of the only incentives for someone running for public office. And that's not a that's not a dig on them. That's a good thing. We want that to be the case. But when we change the electoral incentives, you're changing your politics right along with it. And probably the biggest thing we have going against us right now is gerrymandering. Because we're drawing safe seats for, you know, the incumbent officials that are there. And we're drawing them in such a way, we're drawing these districts in ways that, you know, the only way you can lose an election is in the primary. And when that's the case, when you know you're going to win the general election no matter what, because 75% of the district is partisans who identify with your party, you're only worried about the primary. And in the primary, the only way you lose the primary is at the flanks. You get outcompeted by someone more liberal or more conservative from you, from Democrat or Republican perspectives, which means that your average elected official now is drifting in those directions because they have nothing to fear. So we don't have a center seeking democracy anymore. 
when electoral districts are either random or when they're statewide where there's no gerrymandering possible, there is that center seeking mentality because you know that to win a general election, you're going to have to capture a big chunk of that middle vote that's sort of unaffiliated with any party. In the absence of that, though, of course, we have increasing polarization. Of course, we have increasing partisanship. And that's the good news is that fixing that, you know, if we if, if we could wake up tomorrow and gerrymandering were a thing of the past and all electoral districts were just drawn by computers, you know, trying to draw the most compact districts they can, you would almost overnight see a, a, a dramatic shift in the way our political discourse runs and plays out. And obviously, there's a lot that feeds into this. We can talk about social media. We can talk about you know, you know, the, the sort of like in-group, out-group, us-versus-them dynamic we've engendered for two generations. And that, that would take some time to disentangle. But in terms of actually changing the way political elites behave and the way they communicate, that would do it by itself. That would solve nine out of ten concerns that we have about how American democracy is functioning right now. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In-Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.